Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen and this week we'll be looking at issue number 504, July 23rd, 1994, £1.40. Last week, at the beginning of the episode, I was talking about how this uh, podcast is now fully vaccinated because I've had my second vaccine. There was me being all, well, I don't think I was being smug, but there was me just being, you know, all happy about having the vaccine. And then a day later, I was unbelievably sick from it. Flu, fever, all of that stuff. It only lasted about 12 hours, but it was absolutely grim. So if anyone out there is having the Moderna vaccine, uh, if you have the second one, just make sure you book some time off work because I had to take time off work because I felt so grim. I mean, maybe you're pro-vaccine, maybe you're anti-vax. I'm not here to judge you. If you would like to discuss vaccines or anything else to do with um, Kerrang! How's that for a sticking in a weird tangent? If you would like to contact us, we can be contacted through Instagram at Kerrang! Back Issues, Twitter, Kerrang! Pod, and email kerrangbackissues at gmail.com. And if you'd like to leave us a review on Apple Music, that would be lovely. No problem if not. Very tenuous link there from Kerrang! to vaccines. I think we should uh, start talking about this week's issue. So, cover stars for this week are Skid Row. They're back. Skid Row, first live show for two years. Riotous Return Plus LP exclusive. Also, Alice in Chains, Health Crisis Halts Tour. ACDC, what's going on? Motley Crue, US Tour Collapses. Vyman joins Wild Hearts. Plus, The Almighty Little Angels, Lollapalooza, Killing Joke and Sensor. Mental health warning, stage diving can kill, shocking report inside. Pearl Jam and Aerosmith team up to fight for fans' rights. Plus, Faith No More, 8-page pullout and new guitarist revealed. I'm going to try something now. Um, So within the contents, I usually skip it because I just go straight into reading the magazine. At the front of Kerrang! there's a five-question quiz. So I'm going to read you these questions and you'll get the answers at the end of the episode so question one in which year did i made and release their power slave album two which sepultura album features the track slaves of pain three which soundgarden album includes slaves and bulldozers four whose second album was entitled from enslavement to obliteration five which ludicrous character fronted slave raider I really hope I remember to um, come back to this quiz because there'll be nothing more frustrating than you get to the end of the podcast and I've completely forgotten and there's no answers. Uh, Let's start this week with Mayhem, the hottest news in metal first. Motley Screwed. Motley Crue have sensationally scrapped the East Coast leg of their US tour. The troubled US stars cancelled a string of July dates amid widespread speculation that the band's popularity had reached an all-time low. No official comment for the cancelled dates has been given, but poor ticket sales are thought to be the main factor. The band are, however, expected to reschedule the shows later this year. The live dates were part of the crew's first US tour with new singer John Karabi, who replaced departed frontman Vince Neil in 1992. The band had originally been scheduled to play arena-type venues with the Ramones and the Butthole Surfers completing an impressive high-profile package. However, the band eventually settled for New York Gothic Metal as type of negative as support and moved many of their shows to smaller venues. In some instances, ticket sales of less than 1,000 have been reported. Alice in Pain Alice Chains have pulled out of their US tour with Metallica after shock reports of a major health crisis within the band. The Seattle Stars' last-minute withdrawal from the Mammoth Metallica tour and from the monumental Woodstock 2 festival comes just days before the band were due to hit the road. Alice in Chains were to be special guests on the second and final leg of Metallica's tour, which started on July 17th and will run for 26 dates. A statement from Alice in Chains' management company, Susan Silver Management, reads, Alice in Chains have withdrawn because of health problems. The band acknowledge and appreciate the support and concern of their fans everywhere and hope to resolve the situation in privacy. The band look forward to returning to the recording studio in the fall. Stop Press now and Robert Plant and Jimmy Page have spent seven days together working on new material in a 48-track recording studio. Therapy have at last been confirmed for the Sunday night of this year's Reading Festival where they're third on the bill. White Snake released a new single, Is This Love, this week. The band have still to announce the support for their UK tour after Pride and Glory end their stint on July the 23rd. 
Guns N' Roses guitarist Slash is thought to be considering former Little Caesar singer Ron Young for his debut solo album, and Dogs to Armoire frontman Tyler plays his debut UK solo acoustic gig at London Manette Street Borderline on July 28th. Pearl Jam and Aerosmith are waging war on a US ticket agency in a monumental fight to bring down the price of concert tickets. The two hard rock giants say that Ticketmaster, who handle bookings for a reputed 80% of major US venues are operating as a monopoly and pushing up ticket prices with their excessive service charges. Both bands are appealing for government intervention. Earlier this year, Pearl Jam complained that Ticketmaster had strong arm promoters into boycotting the band's planned summer tour. Pearl Jam had wanted to keep ticket prices under $20 with a suggested service fee of $1.80. But Ticketmaster's intended cut made that, made that impossible. The band found that they could not book a tour without running into Ticketmaster, who, it has been claimed, can effectively blacklist any bands not prepared to approve their service fees, which have rocketed during the past few years. The system for booking tickets in America differs greatly from in the UK, where British fans can usually buy tickets direct from venues. Even where tickets are bought through agencies, booking fees are not normally above several pounds. At many venues in the States, however, people can only buy tickets from Ticketmaster. Their fees are sometimes as much as 25% of the ticket's face value. At an oversight hearing before a House subcommittee in Washington DC on June the 30th, Pearl Jam guitarist Stone Gossard and bassist Jeff Ament said that the band had always tried to set reasonable ticket prices so that the teenage fans had the opportunity to attend their concerts. Gossard also pointed out that the band did not get any share of service charges imposed by Ticketmaster and doesn't seek them. Also at the hearing, Aerosmith manager Tim Collins said Pearl Jam's only alternative to increasing ticket prices beyond the level that they felt would be acceptable was to postpone their US tour until this matter could be settled. And because Ticketmaster are the only show in town, if our artists want to perform live, we have to swallow this bitter pill and play by their rules. They've got us by the balls. The Wild Hearts, as sensationally revealed in last week's Mayhem, have sacked guitarist CJ. They dropped the bombshell at the final stages of recording their second full-length album, waving bye-bye to the co-founding guitarist who frontman Ginger tempted away from the glamorous tattooed Love Boys back in early 1989. Ginger of the Wild Hearts had this to say, In five years, people grow apart, and it wasn't a new thing that me and CJ have been having a problem with each other. Unfortunately, as a leader of the band, you've got to take responsibility for everybody else's frame of mind. And if something isn't working right and everybody else is being motivated in the wrong way, then you've got to do something about it. It's one of the pitfalls. But CJ is still working on the record and we're getting on better than we ever have. We've only been in the public eye for a couple of years. In five years time, we might have gone through all kinds of lineup changes. We could even end up being an eight or nine piece band. It's important to accept change and we will in the wild hearts. We're not gonna get a replacement as such for CJ. We're going to get a stand-in, Devon Townsend who sang for Steve Vai and who we met when we toured with them in Europe and who incidentally is also an amazing guitarist as well as being a lovely bloke. He'll be with us at Reading Festival and he's an amazing performer so it should be a good show. Record releases and Amoebix, the cult doom outfit, have their classic Arise album released on CD for the first time this month. The album, which was originally released way back in 1985, will be available through the Alternative Tentacles label. L7 will be featured on innovative Channel 4 programme Passengers on July 29th. The Friday Night Show has already featured the likes of the Beastie Boys and Australian lesbian motorcycle enthusiast Dykes on Bikes. Tour news and Drive Like Jehu, the San Diego noise terrorists play their first ever UK dates this month in support of their second album, the brilliantly lurching Yank Crime. You can catch Froberg and Drive Like Jehu reluctantly unleashing their criminal tendencies at Leicester Princess Charlotte July 22nd, Leeds Duchess of York 23rd, Edinburgh Venue 25th, Newcastle upon Tyne Cumberland Arms 26th, Newport TJ's 27th and London Camden Underworld on the 28th. Paradise Lost have added an extra date to their forthcoming UK tour. The Halifax Metal Mob played Liverpool Royal Court September 3rd. The show follows their prestigious date at London Astoria on September the 2nd. The 1994 KISS convention will take place at London Astoria 2 on September the 3rd. Original KISS drummer Peter Chris will be at the event, as will the official UK KISS tribute band Dress to Kill. Tickets are priced at £9, £10 on the day, and are available now from the Astoria. 
A series of promotional nights in support of the film The Crow have been lined up at venues across the UK. They will feature giveaways relating to the film, which features music from Stone Temple Pilots, Pantera, Helmet, Nine Inch Nails, Rage Against the Machine and Rollins Band, among others. The promotional tour takes in Ilford Island, Blackpool Tash, Nottingham Rock City and Birkenhead Stairways, July 22nd, Birmingham Edwards No. 8, 23rd, London Camden Palace 26th, Newcastle upon Tyne Mayfair 29th and Durham Chester Le Street Crocodillos on the 30th. Biohazard are rumoured to be lining up a one-off UK show for September. The Brooklyn Bruisers are slated to play London Brixton Academy on September the 1st but the show has still to be confirmed. Jeffro Toll have confirmed a one-off show at London Clapham Grand. The enduring Brit outfit played the venue on August the 11th. The show is a benefit for Friends of the Earth and is being billed as the band's only London date this year. Tickets are on sale now at £15. Coast to coast now, and this week we are with Don K in New York. Well, it's official. The new white zombie drummer is John Tempesta, formerly of Exodus and Testament. In fact, John left Testament just as the band finished recording their latest album, Low. Even though they're a West Coast band and I'm kind of supposed to stick to East Coast stuff, I will say that the new Testament stuff is the heaviest from them in years. And who will replace Tempesta on drums? Gene Hoagland of Death was rumoured around these parts, but I have it from reliable sources that that's strictly a rumour and nothing more. People are starting to talk about the new Dream Theater album titled Awake and due out in October. Well, I was privileged to hear very rough tapes of the material and can say that fans shouldn't be disappointed. Even yours truly, not the biggest DT fan, was impressed with several of the tracks, which boast heavier, more aggressive riffs and a darker tone. One song, with crunching guitar and Hammond organ interplay, was comparable to a modern-day Atomic Rooster. But fear not, the material also features all the Dream Theater trademarks, including plenty of orchestration, time changes and prog rock flourishes. One of our New York sources also got an earful of the new long-awaited Queensryche opus recently. Tentatively titled The Promised Land, the music was described to Kerrang as dark, heavy, very sad but beautiful. Sounds like the four-year wait since Empire could be well worth it. Well, the Scorpions hit the Beacon Theatre on Broadway on 75th this week, and the smaller venue highlighting the problems the Scorpions have had with their Face to Heat album in the States. Like many other veteran bands, they seem to have fallen out with the alternative generation. Nevertheless, the streets were buzzing with the recently confirmed news that the Scorps are leaving Phonogram Records and have signed a new deal with East West that will earn them $3 million per album. That's for four albums, kids. Someone at East West must know something we don't. Bruce Dickinson pulled into town for an intimate, unplugged performance at the Harley Davidson Cafe. Just Bruce and his guitarist sitting on stalls and playing for a New York music industry gathering. Problem was, the place was so hot and the sound system so inadequate that the crowd never gave Bruce a fair shake preferring to schmooze and munch on the dubious chicken wings, ribs and pasta salad provided by the cafe. After four songs, the duo called it quits, with Bruce seemingly more at ease introducing people to his new eight-week-old daughter later in the evening. The next night was a rip-roaring party for the release of Liquor in the Front, the new album from the almighty Reverend Horton Heat. This party was held at Julian's, a large old billiard room on 14th Street. It was as hot as hell inside, but the place was packed with industry folk engaged in some fierce games of pool. Poker, naturally, was in the rear. Free beer and Mexican munchies were thoughtfully provided, and the Rev himself held court and took on all challenges at his own centrally located table, while the excellent new album blasted from the PA and some joker from MTV's The Real World watched himself on a large TV screen. Finally, congrats to Kisses Paul Stanley and his wife Pamela on the recent birth of their son Evan Shane. Early reports indicate that he weighed less than the band's forthcoming and hefty Kistery book. Beavis, you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! We now come to concerts, and the first concert reviewed this week is Jackal, live at the Marquee London, Thursday, July the 14th, this review is by Razel, and this gets electrocution. No, it doesn't. It gets high voltage out of five. Four out of five. 
Upon my arrival, the frontman of Support Act, Blackbone Fever, was joyously wishing everyone a good night. In my book, that's points for basic politeness and a name check because if the impetus bloke from Fire and Rain didn't pester me in the foyer with his flyer, I would have caught their last crucial 45 seconds. They stole the show anyway. If it feels good, do it, was the repetitive war cry of Jesse Dupree, front and backside man of Atlanta Boogie Bozo's Jackal, and he loved every second of himself. I came back from the bog at one point to be informed you missed it. Missed what? Jesse flashing his jacksie, because evidently that's the highlight of a Jackal gig. That and the ooh, are you ready? The, the, the chainsaw, ooh. Scared the hell out of me, fine along to the rhythm like it was. Such control. I've got no idea what Kareem were going on about there. And then slicing up a tool like that, like, yeah, I'm with you, Jesse. I hate that stool too. Maim that motherfucker stool. Make it suffer like stools have made me suffer. You know what I liked? The first half, when they played it straight. Sure, Dupree sounds like Mickey Mouse having an orgasm or Vince Neil with a good producer, but when Jacko are putting your mind in of such metabolism bone shakers as Molly Hatchet, The Gods and Black Oak Arkansas, you're smiling like the cat who got the rat and looking forward to that Kentucky fried on the way home. Like I say, the cat who got the... Jacko's riffs are pure blood, guts and gristle. Actually, their blood, guts and gristle are pure riffs too. And yes, it is as old hat as you'd imagine. Jackal would be at home in a late 70s California jam with the likes of Ted Nugent, Mahogany, Rush and oh yeah, Aerosmith. It's as if Suicide Rock never happened. Then again, it's also as if, how could this possibly happen? Redneck revolutionaries fighting for their right to have fun, drink beer, get naked and butcher innocent kitchen furniture. Um, should I yell yee-haw here or something? Despite the fact that Dupree's between-song hyperbanter was as decipherable as a dyslexic Martian reciting Hebrew, the crowd responded to his oral spinach like a whore to sex. Very in-jokey, very suspicious too, as if people in Britain had forked out Dosh for Jackal Records and analysed them. They came, they chainsawed, and they conquered. Today in the marquee, tomorrow, um, breakfast at their hotel, I suppose. I am going to go out on a limb here and say that might be possibly the worst concert review that I've ever read uh, on this on this podcast. I imagine that when Razel wrote that in his head, it was great. But when you actually read it back out loud, it is absolute garbled shambles. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry that I had to read it, but I'm also sorry that you had to hear me read it because it was just a load of crap, let's be honest. Anyway, next concert reviewed is Tool at the Waterfront Norwich, Tuesday, July the 12th. Reviewed by Paul Rees, this gets short circuit out of five, two out of five. Maynard James Keenan is flopping around the waterfront's tiny stage like Christopher Lloyd's melting cartoon character in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. His tiny insect eyes stare dead ahead, willing you to meet his gaze, then drop in if you hold it too long. Fuck off, screams someone from the general direction of the bar. This is not the effect Keenan had anticipated. His crazed mugging is supposed to make you shift uncomfortably from one foot to the other. Deeply disturbed by the sight of a clearly troubled man pouring out his personal demons in naked torrents, and faced by a cast of thousands in one of the Lollapalooza arenas. He may have been impressively psychotic. But, in a half-full club in Norwich, he looks no more menacing than one of those old men who everybody laughs at when they enter gurning contests. Tall are indeed a puzzle. Edgy, and occasionally thrilling on the OP8 mini-album, brooding, and often hypnotic on undertow, yet almost indescribably dull, turgid, and downright tedious whenever they stand and sulk beneath stage lights. According to Keenan, they've been largely misunderstood and misrepresented in this country. He is wrong. Rather, Tall are neither difficult nor unpredictable enough in the flesh to demand your interest. Merely, another group of miserable middle-class Americans with nothing to say for themselves. They are the equivalent of a man who invites his girlfriend into his bedroom to watch him having a wank. A self-serving, self-fulfilling act that has no intention of involving the observer. Tall's audience begin like voyeurs, watching Keenan's tortured exhibitionism from a distance. They finish looking at the floor and checking their watches every few seconds. Or tonight, they articulate their frustra frustration by shouting bollocks at regular intervals. Whatever, they do not enjoy or submerge themselves in something as cold and unattractive as prison sex. And why should they even try when the whole business of entertaining and communicating appears to cause to themselves such massive pain? Aside from bassist Paul D'Armois, Tool are a band who perform like funeral mourners. Even the songs that tug at you and maul you on record, like OPA and Sober, are offered up like limp, lifeless bodies with something rotten at their core. 
they play, or in truth destroy one piece of music that is as giant and ghostly as they want to be, it is a cruel reading of Led Zeppelin's No Quarter, a song that is more than 20 years old. Some fucking alternative. The next review is for Buzz Oven at CBGB's New York on Tuesday, July the 12th. This review is by Stephen Blush, and this gets a high voltage out of 5, which is a 4 out of 5. Roadrunner Records have earned a mighty reputation for unleashing brutal music on an unsuspecting public. From King Diamond to Sepultura to Deicide to Biohazard, Metal's premier indie label has set the standard for spleen-ripping riffage and mosh-ready madness in the modern age. For 1994, they've outdone themselves with their most recent raging signing, Buzz Oven. Southern scumbags unleashing a potent brew of corrosion of conformity-inspired rancor and industrial-era innovation. Buzz Oven set the crowd on fire with a searing combination of alcohol-induced musical mania and self-propelled pyrotechnics, cherry bombs and broken glass. The band's frenetic 45-minute set was not for the faint-hearted, sending any wussies in the house running away in horror and state-of-the-art rock fans reeling with delight. Natty dreadlock vocalist Kurt Fisher bled and brooded and fucked with the audience's minds, while the rest of his brutal band kept the mighty wheels in motion. Buzz Oven songs are searing, but their strength is in finding an aggressive groove and staying in the pocket. The future looks bright for Buzz Oven, ugly music for ugly times, anti-melodic metal made for the grunge generation. They are just what the doctor ordered in these dire days. With Roadrunner behind them and the whole wide world ready to be conquered, don't be surprised if the temperature in the oven starts to soar. Next in concerts, there is a piece called Unleashed in the East. The metal and hardcore scene is stirring up in the land of the rising sun. With both homegrown talent and tours by overseas acts going down a storm, as usual, Kerrang is first on the scene with an on-the-spot report from legendary metal artist and label module, Pusshead. So this review is for 16, Kokobat, Concrete Octopus and Cycle, live at the Fandango Osaka, Japan on Friday, June the 17th. The review gets a high voltage out of 5, which is a 4 out of 5. Osaka is hot. The sweat streams across the flesh constantly. The Fandango Club is on a small street lined with a few prostitute clubs. Tonight, the street is packed. The show is sold out. No one budges. Should be fun. Cycle come on stage to a nearly packed house for their first gig. The five numbers they kick out are laced with heavy, thick tones working the kids into a frenzy. The thermometer creeps up a few notches from body heat alone. Vocalist Hero, ex Dado, whips his dreads about and agonizes a few monotone moans. Cycle brim with promise. Concrete Octopus is Ice, frontman of the legendary Boredom's Thrash Project, growing in popularity. By the time Ice steps out on stage in a sweater and purple visor, the floor is literally a sardine tin, overflowing with kids. From the first note, it is pure hardcore thrash. The crowd is in a frenzy, while Ice is jumping, screaming, throwing his legs any which way. He chants, Punk is dead, and Concrete Octopus obliged with some crazy intros. As there is no pit, the crowd is just a giant squash of flesh and wet clothes. 13 songs later, I screen some warped version of My Sharona beyond recognition. He finally flips back on the purple visor and exit away from the heat. Cocobat find the crowd has stepped out for a much needed breather, but it doesn't last long. Stage right, finger plucking bassman Takeshi is storming all about the stage, whipping his head, thrusting his tool with some of the best bass lines to be heard. But his strategy doesn't last long. Soon, the kids jump up on stage, imitating his every move in full airbase style. The attack of Kokobat's sound, with its hefty rock versus hardcore beat, is tight and chunky. This is a band full of diversity in its musical approach, and the kids welcome it with sweaty limbs. Vocalist Ryuji, shirtless, red short cropped hair, stands motionless most of the time. A waterfall of sweat pouring from inside him. His vocals are shrills of agony that can be heard but not seen. Kokobat end their 10 song set with some excellent new tunes and intense version of Ugly Shit Needs More Paper, which worked brutally into the crowd. As Takeshi gives them a warm Japanese greeting, 16 assemble. Chris picks up the mic and shouts, Hello Osaka, then the band burst into Texas Tunnel. The volley is thunderous, deafening, pure brutal intensity and absolutely tight. Chris is wailing from his throat, gasping for breath, slumped over as if in pain, but still delivering the goods. During Wash Me, the heat in this place must be 120 degrees. In this stove-like atmosphere, drummer Jason Corley extends every thrust, pounding like there is no tomorrow, a smile at every beat. Between songs, he throws up his first dose of Japanese food, ready to smash again. The crowd doesn't even notice. 16 are possessed, pushing the crowd completely to the edge. No sardines have left the can. 
Curves that kick finishes off the evening as a big Domo Arigato gets a roar and Chris thrusts himself as far out into the crowd as he can. Jason pukes again and goes out for a dive. Kids on stage are helping Bobby play leads. 16 provide a soccer a show it will never forget, full of vigour and energy. Next time, they should play in a swimming pool. Is it Japan or 16? It's hard to tell. We now come to this week's cover stars. The Skids are united and they're back on stage delivering heavy metal to the masses. Yeah, Skid Row have survived all the fights and frustrations of 18 months in the wilderness and are now set to record their heaviest album yet. Razel gets the full Skid scam from singer Sebastian Bach and guitarist Dave Snake Sabo. Skid Row are back and six stringer Dave Snake Sabo is buzzing. The Skids have just played their first major gig in roughly 18 months and there's a new album to follow. You forgot Skid Row made records, didn't you? Their last effort, the rectal bruising slave to the grind is soon to clock up its third birthday. And for a while there, it looked like there wasn't going to be another Skid Row album. Yep, in the past year, all hell was broken loose in the Skid's rank. And back in October, the shit really hit the fan. Seven Snake slug it out, screamed the headline in Kerrang's Warts and All News exclusive, and we weren't joking. Spilling the beans to the big K San Franciscan stringer Stefan Shirazi, Snake groaned, Sebastian and I definitely have a problem with each other which both of us are trying to work out. Everything with us is a fucking fight. Christ almighty, how long are we gonna do this to each other? The only thing we have in common is how much we love Skid Row. Sebastian responded a couple of weeks later, Everyone has their ups and downs, but Skid Row is not anything anyone will ever quit or be fired over. It's a life sentence. And you know what? He meant it. Seven Snake have buried the hatchet. Skid Row are back in your face and there's one hell of a heavy metal album coming at you next year. When Snake gets talking to the Big K again this week, the noise of the Skid's comeback show is still ringing in his ears. The smell of sweat still in his nostrils and the man is so happy to be back up on a stage playing full on heavy fucking metal with Skid fucking Row. I'm doing extremely well right now here in Tampa, Florida, the death metal center of the world, he chuckles. The show was at the USS Soccer Stadium. Basically, we were asked to be a part of the 4th of July celebrations where they commemorate the Boston Tea Party of 1066. This big get together where people just drink beer, get happy and listen to loud rock and roll. Just for a change, eh? Exactly, haha. -ha. It's the world's largest barbecue and we've headlined it. Paul was on the bill, the smithereens, I Mother Earth, meat puppets. I really can't remember them all because I wasn't here for the rest of the show, only our ship. How long had it been exactly since Skid Row last played live? About a year and a half. We'd been re rehearsing and getting things together for the next album, but we hadn't had this opportunity to get out and play. So when this came up, our management said it might be a really cool thing for us guys to do. Get our asses out in front of people and let them know we're still alive and kicking. For me, it was really strange. It was like going out and playing my first gig. I had butterflies in my stomach and I was all nervous. And I'll tell you what, we got hit by a massive rainstorm about 10 minutes before we went on, which is typical for us. Remember Donington. Snake cackles at the memory of the Skids' heroic and hysterical performance of the 1992 Monsters of Rock when the heavens opened just before showtime. Sebastian hit the stage running and promptly fell flat on his ass before he'd sung a note. Lesser frontman would have died there and then, but Baz was born to play Donington and the Skids triumphed then just as they did in Tampa on Independence Day. The Tampa show was unbelievable, exclaimed Snake. And you know, it gave us the opportunity to play new stuff live and see how people reacted to it. The best thing about doing that is when you hang out and party after the show and people start talking about the songs you did. And after all that bullshit and crap you go through, it makes everything worthwhile. I take it then that the new stuff was well received. Yeah, I was really surprised that people actually remembered the names of the songs and commented on them. It's really cool because you don't know. Snake is suddenly cut off mid-sentence by a deafening voice roaring down the transatlantic line. Fucking ripped, excuse me. It's Sebastian fucking Razel, that's not your real name. What the hell are you on? I'm not on anything, I'm on caffeine, that's like standard operating procedure. But great, we just did our first gig, as you know, it was killer, man. It was a lot of fun. We did like three new tunes, which went over better than our old tunes, which is a good sign. Is this really you, or Snake doing an impression? No, I swear to God, Baz, please, before turning to Snake and explaining. Man, he goes, is this really you or Snake doing an impersonation? There's a mucho background chortling before Sebastian returns with a sonic. Wahoo, yeah. It's me, dude. What's going on in England? It's sunny. It's sunny. There's a first time for everything, isn't there? Ha, ha, ha. Wish you were here. Me too. We're coming, man. Wait till you hear the new shit. You're going to freak out. You're really going to dig it, says Seb before lowering the volume to a level more Richter scale friendly. 
We had the guys from Biohazard and Pantera watching the show with 20,000 kids out front. It was insane. It was a great way to come back. It was really a lot of fun. Did you hear about who was on the bill? It was all these alternative bands. Pretty weird, but um, hey, I'll play for anyone, anywhere, anytime, for anybody, including you, Ray. Ha ha ha. All right, I gotta catch a plane. Have a good one. Snake picks up again. Hi, Ray. I think my phone just exploded. Ha ha. Awesome. So where were we? The new songs you played, what were they called? We did Frozen, Bonehead and My Enemy. All ballads, I imagine. Oh yeah, exactly. Bonehead is a ballad. Ha <laughs> ha. Unbelievable. So what's the new shit really like? All out metal? Punky? It's just getting into different grooves and stuff like that. Bonehead is the closest thing to a punk song, but everything is extremely heavy. I asked Nick if the skids have uh, settled on a producer for the new album. He goes off on a rant about a killer beverage he once experienced, a most entertaining yet somewhat abstract answer to my question. Producer, he checks. I thought you said old peculiar. I'm sorry. We've been phoning a bunch of different people, but it'd be stupid for me to say this guy or that guy because people wouldn't have a clue what we're doing. Because we don't have a clue what we're doing, all we've been doing is demoing, rehearsing and writing. You once said that songwriting is a slow process for Skid Row. Absolutely, he concedes. It's like we're Def Leppard or something. We just take so long to make records. Must be frustrating. Very. Especially being a songwriter. Everybody wants the ultimate goal. The best album you're capable of making. And to achieve that, you're up against five extremely distinct personalities with five very strong opinions. So you're going to have two people who like something and three who don't. If we were Prince, this record would have been done two years ago. But everybody respects each other's vision of what they want this band to be. We will never release anything until we believe it's the best we could possibly do at that moment in our lives. See you all big one happy family again. Ha! Absolutely. Well, you know what? I was thinking about that before I got on the phone to you. The last time I really spoke to Kerrang, there was some seriously heavy shit uh, going down between you and Baz. Yep. When the stars air their dirty laundry, they use the Kerrang clothesline. I remember saying to Stefan Shirazi, I'm not going to bullshit you. This is what's going on. Didn't Baz read it and phone you to say, why didn't you just tell me? Absolutely. We got on the phone and we got it on together. We looked at each other and said, this is stupid. There was a point at the sound check the other night where I just turned around and was facing the rest of the guys in the band and just went, holy shit, man. This is a fucking really cool band, you know. And I just like being a part of it. A lot of bands eight years down the road lose their flavour. For that, none of us have. What happens next? Go back home, get back into rehearsal and just keep bashing out the rest of this record. We won't be in the studio for a year, I guarantee it. We couldn't handle that. We'll take two or three months and get the hell back on the road. I think this gig gave everybody a reality kick, you know. Realistically, when would you like to see the new album released? In reality, me being honest, I couldn't see it being released before the new year. I'd say January. A happy fucking new year. There's your album title. Exactly. Communication now, and we begin this week with Letter of the Week about one of the most divisive topics that the long hairs had to deal with in the 90s. Top of the Pops. I just want to ask one simple question. Were any other Kerrang! readers as outraged as I was to hear the abomination tagged on to the end of Top of the Pops on Thursday, July the 7th? I am, of course, writing about the high-energy dance version of Nirvana's classic Smells Like Teen Spirit. Fortunately, they only played a snippet of it as the credits rolled, but any more and I'd have thrown up. It was despicable. And the question is, who gave the rights for these disco flop sellout prats to cover Teen Spirit? Kurt Cobain would turn in his grave. Rolf Harris doing Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven? I could handle. In fact, I bought it for a laugh. But this, I can't hack. Okay, those soft, sad DJs are going to have a field day with it, but we true music fans should be up in arms. I urge Kerrang! readers to write phone or hold hostage all known radio stations and make sure this trash doesn't get any airplay. They pushed it too far this time. Rest in Pete. Rest in Pete? <laughs> Sorry, Pete. Rest in peace, Kurt Cobain, Mark from Redditch. Strong words. But we think the single in question is garbage as well. So that's why you win our Letter of the Week prize this week, editor. It has taken me this long to write because it has taken me this long to get over the shock. How could he do it? How could the sexiest creature on earth ruin himself in such a way? The person who should be in prison for this crime is the sadistic bastard who cut Gary Sharon's hair. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to lie down in a darkened room. Vivian from South Benfleet. 
Now there's a rumour that Alec may be leaving, and it's left us Bon Jovi fans grieving. You've bonded together for 10 years or more, so don't make our hearts inside sore. Okay, so maybe you're not as good looking as the rest, but of all the bass players, you're the best. When I first heard the news, I thought, no way. So Alec John Such, please stay. Petronella Stroud. Just something I need to get off my chest. I know a band like Guns N' Roses is a big news, but why the constant backstabbing? Getting the ring proved that the band are well and truly fed up with it, and so are us fans. So stop sending us all into a state of fucking depression every time you report a split, and instead give us something decent to read on the guys from the world's best band. Mel, Stanford Lee Hope. I've just read the article on drugs in issue 502, and I would like to thank Paul Elliott and Pete Mikowski for the best thing I've read in ages. Being a reformed drug addict, I could relate to it totally and I just hope other people will take heed. Yours heroin freely, Baz from Shrewsbury. Gagging for a shagging. Our feelings are too strong. We can hold back no longer. We just have to nominate the gorgeous Mike Gray from Skin for gagging for a shagging. Has no one noticed his adorable eyes, cute smile, beautiful perm and sexy body all wrapped up nicely in a pair of tartan trousers? If there is a god, surely this man is him. Mike's Hair Rollers from Cambridge. Why is Ted Nugent, issue 502, such a wanker? He's such a fucking ignorant twat with shit for brains. He talks for his ass and his views on guns if someone blows his fucking legs off, well done to them. I'd like to see him go hunting, then the ignorant cunt. And if anyone who agrees with Nugent is fucked up too, fuck sexists, Fuck racists, fuck homophobics, fuck trendies, and uh, why do no major groups come to play in Cardiff? Peace, Chopper from Cardiff. That Shannon Hoon must have a top sense of humour, eh? I bet he gets invited to all the parties. I'll tell you the real joke, that Blind Melon ever got signed in the first place. After all, we all know they're just a bunch of spotty, talentless, droning, middle-class yanks pretending to be the Grateful Dead. Stanley Panley. To Henry Rollins' Dental Floss, issue 502. Before you slag off the British Heavy Metal Awards for whatever reason, at least get your facts straight. Curb Dog couldn't possibly win Best British Act at this year's Metal Awards or any other years, seeing as they're from Kilkenny in the Republic of Ireland. So they're Irish, not British, which a lot of you English people seem to forget whenever a brilliant band just happens to be Irish. A babe in Toyland from London. Short and Curlies. If the Wolves could talk, do you think they'd tell me what the fuck's happened to Skew Siskin? Nina's Lederhosen, Oxford. Donington was over a month ago, so why can't I get my bastard boots clean? Mark Moshman from Brixham. Has Ginger gone nuts? Fans' first responses as popular guitarist CJ gets the boot. Ginger has lost possibly one of the Wild Hearts' greatest assets in their guitarist CJ. In sacking him, he's completely lost his uh, already diminishing credibility due to his habit of seemingly discarding good musicians just because he happens to be in a bad mood. CJ is simply a great player. He can peel off riffs as crunchy as celery sticks and melodies that attach themselves to the brain like bubblegum. Anyway, as both CJ and Ginger founded the band together, I don't see how it is possible for either one of them to sack the other. Ginger, please reconsider because you're making a great mistake and jeopardising the success which is so nearly in your grasp. A Nazi hater from Milton Keynes. CJ fired from the Wild Hearts. Well, I'm afraid the band will never be the same again. The Wild Hearts are seemingly sadly on the road to self-destruction. Ginger has always stated that this was always a band in the true sense of the word with each member having a real role and an equal say. What utter bollocks. As in Blackmore's Rainbow or Coverdale's White Snake, this is Ginger's Wild Hearts. You either do as Ginger says or you're out. Both Bam and Stiddy appear to have left under similar circumstances. Who's next? Danny? Danny obviously lives and breathes the Wild Hearts. He must have been mates with all the departed musicians. How must he feel seeing people who were his friends being constantly shit on and elbowed out of the band? If Danny goes, then the Wild Hearts really will become a mockery. Ginger's quite obviously an exceptionally talented songwriter, but what should have been a really great proper band has become nothing more than a solo project. That's very sad. Colin, South Shields. Ill communication. We now come to the eight page pullout this week, which is for Faith No More. World exclusive, Faith's new guitarist unmasked, plus hostile Mike Patton and Jim Martin posters inside. So Jim Martin's left Faith No More, but they're still uh, giving you a poster of him, so that's nice, isn't it? 
There's a little bit of writing here, not too much. Faith No More have announced the name of their new guitarist. After many months of speculation and anticipation, the man set to fill Jim Martin's big, sick, ugly shoes is Trace Spruance, who also plays in Mr. Bungle with Faith frontman Mike Patton. The new lineup, completed as ever by Patton, Mike Borden, Bill Gould, and Roddy Bottom, will head to Bearsville Studios in upstate New York, where they will work with producer mixer Andy Wallace on their as yet untitled fifth studio album. Moving on now to singles. This week's new singles are reviewed by Chris Watts and the first review this week is for Is This Love by Whitesnake on EMI. A masterful summer schmaltz from the Wrinkle Farm. These days, such old trouser snake classics as this sound quaint and old and rosy, but that's no reason why the new lineup shouldn't make a fortune in Japan. Whether anyone should give a toss is another matter. Next is Dummy Crusher by Curb Dog on Phonogram. Flaunting their Irishness on a picture disc decorated with a cartoon leprechaun is a bloody obvious bid to endear Curb Dog to the USA. It's a dangerous game to start selling yourself on your nationality, since America hasn't given a flying toss about any European band in the past 10 years. It's also futile. It's difficult to imagine Dummy Crusher reversing this state of affairs. Curb Dog are trying too hard to write a chorus like Therapy and paying scant attention to the admittedly brutal verses. Ultimately, it sounds less of a real single and more like a promotional tool. Next single is the, type, the song Hamburg by Creaming Jesus on Jungle. Memorable for being one of the few singles this week that doesn't sound like a banana milkshake, Hamburg is completely unseasonal and a total Chinese burn around the wrist of corporate cock rock. A massive wake-up call for anyone still remotely interested in the industrial metal crossover. Paradise Lost with their gothic EP on Peaceville Records. A re-release of Paradise Lost's brilliantly miserable proto-grind which sounds in retrospect like a dodgy terrace anthem played by a team of monks. It should have been the official signature of World Cup 94. It's also a timely reminder of why the Lost are rapidly scaling the slippery pole of celebrity. Single of the week this week is Rockstar's EP by Dollface and this is on Kill City. As the craftiest British lyricist this side of Therapy's Andy Kent, you'd expect Adrian Portas to rewrite the sum total of The Who's Tommy in three minutes. Rockstars are crap, rockstars are sad, sometimes even rockstars get confused, indeed. You wouldn't however expect a tiny British band like Dollface to release such a confidently brilliant, understated EP as Rockstars. The title track itself is probably more commercial than Skyscraper, certainly more intelligent than Little Angels and boasts the blackest humour since poor. Dead Boyfriend in contrast is the greatest non-dub workout never to strobe a Hackney rave club. Both are poignant and perfect. It is now time for us to bid farewell to Little Angels. It's finally over. Little Angels will rock no more. So why did they split up? What gave them the biggest kick during their 10 years together? And what will happen to the band members now? Dave Reynolds gets all the answers in the Angels' last ever Big Kerrang! interview. We used to have this catchphrase of none more rock laughs Little Angels keyboard player and Spinal Tap fan Jimmy Dickinson. You see, we'd really go for it at the end of our set and it'd be like how much more rock could it be? The answer was simply none. No more rock. Ironically, there'll be none more rock from Little Angels from now on. Earlier this year, the band's contract with Polydor was terminated, but in Kerrang's April 2nd issue, Angel's frontman Toby Jepsen wore boxing gloves and a sneer and talked of fighting back with a new record deal and a brash new attitude. Three months later, and the Angels have just played their last ever show, poignantly the biggest headlining gig of their career at the Royal Albert Hall in London. It's a tragedy that one of the brightest and best British hard rock bands of the past 10 years have split. But the quintet, completed by guitarist Bruce John Dickinson, bassist Mark Plunkett and drummer Mark Rich Richardson also see the breakup as a new beginning. We know that it's the right decision to search Jimmy. It is sad, but even our staunchest fans know we're doing this for the best. We don't want to outstay our welcome. We don't want to be one of those bands who are still slogging it around, just tarnishing their reputation by carrying on. I suppose we're brave doing what we're doing because we're still a successful band, but at least we've gone out on a complete high. The Albert Hall show was certainly the biggest gig we've ever done on our own. And it's no mean feat to sell out the place, no matter what kind of act you are, adds Mark Plunkett. Looking back, are they proud of what the band has achieved? I think we achieved more than we could have ever hoped for, reckons Jimmy. Okay, some people might argue that we didn't make a million quid, but cash isn't what we're really about. I believe that some people just never understood us. We've never been like other rock bands. 
which is why some people couldn't accept us because we didn't conform we always did things our way some people put bands together with the sole aim of selling a million records in america and then wonder why it doesn't work the real reason you should put a band together is you enjoy playing music and having a good time with your friends when we started the band i was 15 we were just five bums from scarborough and we still are five bombs from Scarborough. I think we're still as down to earth as ever and I'm proud of that. We've been given the stick for not being rock stars, but to be honest with you, I'd much rather go and have a drink with, um, after a gig with the people who've come to see us play and have a really good chat about anything and everything. I'd rather do that than sit in the hotel room pulling my plonker. If anything, we put the band together to get out of Scarborough and meet people. And I'm telling you, we've met some great people along the way. We were your archetypal touring band when we first started last month, Plonkit. We had all the usual stuff, a battered transit van, a PA held together with string and tape, a lighting rig that electrocuted anybody brave enough to plug it in and a couple of roadies straight out of brick outhouse who spent all their time chatting up birds whilst leaving us to do all the work. We were Spinal Tap but it was brilliant. The thing is, we never waited around for things just to happen. We did everything ourselves including financing our first record, the, to the recently reissued Two Posh to Mosh EP. Things escalated when we got the Polydor deal. That was when we felt we had a career and it became something that involved more than just the five of us. By 1987, Little Angels were supporting Guns N' Roses and Faith No More at the Old Marquee Club in London's Wardour Street. That gig with Guns N' Roses was the hottest show we've ever done, says Jimmy, recording the incredible heat inside the old venue. That place was like an oven when packed to breaking point. Guns N' Roses really were a genuine, amazing rock and roll band back then, he continues. I feel quite privileged to have played with them. The one thing I do remember about them though was the fact that they smell absolutely disgusting and were all drinking out of brown paper bags. Playing with Faith No More when Chuck Mosley was still the singer was great too. Then we did Cinderella's first UK tour. We've played some fucking amazing gigs. ZZ Top at Milton Keynes and the Bon Jovi tour in Europe last year. There were seven of us in a Renault Espace. I think John Bon Jovi must have seen us in it and taken pity on us or something because he invited us to travel on their private plane. Bon Jovi's jet has the band's name emblazoned on its side. Not to be outdone, Little Angels scribbled Little Angels on the Espace for the rest of the tour. Private jets and Super Bowls are all a far cry from the Angels' infamous rock and roll education tour on which they played a matinee show at a local comprehensive school before the Knights Club gig. There are still loads of people who come to see us who first saw us on that tour, states Mark. I'm actually surprised that no other rock band has done it since. We did get a lot of piss taking for doing it, but to my mind, it was a brilliant idea. It was logical, agrees Jimmy, because there were a lot of kids into us who were too young to get into the clubs we were playing, as they had age restrictions. It honestly wasn't a cynical marketing exercise. When we played at the Buckley Tavoli recently and Tony, Toby Jepsen, a girl came up to us with three children in tow and said, I remember seeing you in the fifth year. Little Angels got a little rock and roll education of their own when they opened up for Van Halen across Europe last year. You couldn't meet a nicer bloke than Eddie Van Halen, says Mark. He once even chatted to us while we were sitting on the toilet with his uh, trousers round his ankles, splutters Jepson incredulously. A couple of us were in the gents washing our hands when one of the cubicle doors crashes open and there's Eddie. Hey guys, how's it going? Even his stools had red and white stripes on it, deadpans Jimmy. For Toby Jepson, one of his greatest moments fronting Little Angels was the band's first headline gig at the then Hammersmith Odeon in 1988. I think that was a show that woke us up to the fact that we had something going on, he says now. We honestly thought that it would be pretty good if the place was only half full, but it sold out. And I remember it was the first time we played product of the working class and the whole crowd joined in at the end of the song. They just wouldn't shut up. It was fantastic. It's never been hip to like Little Angels, shrugs Mark, but the people who are into us love our music and don't give a shit about whether it's fashionable. The dedication of our fans is unbelievable, adds Jimmy. Frightening even, people travel vast distances to see us. We recently got a thank you card from a couple of girls from Kemp who've been coming to see us ever since we first played the marquee. The card listed all the gigs they've been to, uh, even including some that they travelled to that ended up being cancelled, and it must have added up to around 150. It was amazing. People knew what they were getting with us, reflects Toby. You paid your money and you had a good time from the moment you walked through the door. We worked hard to ensure it. All we ask, says Jimmy, is that people remember us as a great live band who never wavered to fashion. And so begins a new chapter in the lives of five self-styled bums from Scarborough. Now isn't the time to discuss the future, although Toby reckons Little Angels have, uh, has been their apprenticeship. That's not to belittle it, he stresses. It's been fantastic, and we've done it seriously, but we feel it's time to move on and do something else. It's time to open that sausage factory I've always dreamt about, Jimmy grins. It's time to sign on jokes rich before turning serious. We want to get our heads together and come back with something else individually. We'll take our time, closes Toby. When it was ro rumoured Little Angels had been dropped last year, some people thought it was all over.
it is now. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it was so heavy it couldn't get off the turntable. We now come to records, and the first record reviewed this week is Pandemonium by Killing Joke. This is reviewed by Gordon Goldstein, and this gets 4Ks. From the sun-scorched east, inred Jazz Coleman, hands thrown up at the sky, Geordie, Youth, and Big Paul Ferguson are in tow. They brush off the sand and dust and kick in. The groove hits like a seismic wave. Zeppelin, Zoso, symbols turn to hieroglyphics. The sun turns black and Coleman howls about doomsday at hand. Killing Joke do manage to fit a lot in before the opening blast of the title track of their new album is finished. Pandemonium is an awesome roar, a jagged black cathedral of sound that may or may not have been recorded in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid of Egypt. Or the belly of Noah's Ark, or the south of London. At any rate, it's Coleman and his troop of Armageddonists' best palette of paranoia since What's This For back in 81. Yes, 1990s, extremities, dirt and various repressed emotions was close, a veritable gridlock of cyber tanks at Nostradamus' picnic. Here, Killing Joke's four principal members have come together once more to take back what Al Jorgsen, Trent Reznor, Justin Broderick and countless others have borrowed from them since sounding the klaxon call of war dance back in 79. By the second track, Exorcism, that very task is done, leaving Millennium to pulse ominously on a lethal hook and quiet Middle Eastern flourishes as Coleman waxes in typically Crowley-esque fashion about planetary extinction, and then some. Nostalgia, or a comeback this ain't, there's something a lot more urgent about it. Even when the cataclysmic brouhaha quietens down, Killing Jokes still draw blood. There's a couple of moments that echo the tamer, poppier, Killing Joke of, say, Love Like Blood, particularly Janna, which gives, which gives you a morose respite before Geordie's epochal guitar drone settles down and the electro bongos are pushed to their limits for the 10-ton techno barrage. As the last amped up BPM of Mathematics of Chaos fades, it's clear Pandemonium takes the desperate threads of the past 15 years of Killing Joke and wraps them together once and for all. The result is absolutely incendiary. Noise, distortion, feedback, melody, chaos, some of the best doomsayery to wrap itself around the digital format. Killing Joke have returned with a vengeance. The end must be near. The next album reviewed is titled The Truth Hurts by Propane. This is reviewed by Morat and this gets 3Ks. An extensive hunt through the bowels of my record collection has failed to turn up a copy of Propane's last album, Foul Taste of Freedom. Sadly, if I'd played it just twice since I got it, then I'd be able to find it again now. But no, it's just vanished into the same mire which swallowed up broken bones, the Mac lads and a pile of other obscurities that sounded okay first play but will never see the daylight again. Unfortunately, The Truth Hurts, despite showing a rather drastic change in musical direction, is another vampire of an album that is doomed to the darkened recesses. Sure, there are some good tunes here. One Man Army stands out as an excellent sing-along. If only you could keep it as your, um, in your head long enough, as does Switchblade Knife. After a few plays of the record, however, you still have only the vaguest of memories of some sort of noisy post-hardcore, nothing more. Maybe The Truth Hurts is an album that grows on you. God knows bassist vocalist Gary Meskill deserves a break at last, having been around on the scene for so long. But that brings us to that burning question of the change in musical direction. We all know that it must be disheartening for any musician with an ounce of integrity to see bands who once sported big hair and spandex being accepted on the current hardcore scene. But that's no reason or excuse to just set out to try to sound like Pantera, which is exactly what Propane have done with this record. Besides, even with their slightly iffy past, Pantera do it better than most and certainly better than The Truth Hurts. Alas, Propane have made another nothing album. Nothing much wrong with it, but it'll do nothing and be remembered by no one. And that truth hurts. The next review is for the wonderfully titled album, Live, 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 by Brian Adams. This is reviewed by Steve Beebe and this gets 4Ks. When you see the words Brian Adams and Live in close proximity, you can take it as a guarantee that you'll get your money's worth. Adams and his faithful cohorts, he's stuck with practically the same band since day one, are one of the most entertaining and value for money live acts going. It seems only natural that this aptitude should uh, someday be captured for an album release. It should first be stressed that Live 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 was recorded on July 3rd, 1988 in Verstappen, Belgium, and has been available at great expense on import for several years. Obsessive followers of the Canadian rocker will, therefore, already own a copy. As it isn't a recent recording, don't expect to hear any tracks from the last studio album. 
Waking up the neighbours. That, I'm afraid, means no, everything I do, I do it for you. Shame. This album is, however, as durable as stainless steel. If you haven't already paid over the odds for it, then there's no excuse for not adding a copy to your collection now. In time, this will be looked back on as one of the definitive recordings of Adams' career. Songwriting for him is more than just singing a few tired riffs and pompous choruses together, packing them up in a marketable image. In terms of performance, he's never even needed an image. He's simply a natural. The fact that he is now a huge star is almost immaterial. The heart of the man is what counts. The listings on this 18-tracker read like the chapter titles of a favourite novel. All the reckless classics are here. Run To You, Summer of 69, Kids Wanna Rock, etc. As well as free offerings from the earlier Cuts Like A Knife album. Perhaps most interesting though are the handful of songs taken from Into The Fire, Adams' most introspective album and one which has remained heinously overlooked. Heart Of Fire is a joyous song, among the best Adams has ever written. While the acoustic rendition of Into the Fire itself is even more chilling and heartfelt than its studio equivalent. Covers of Patsy Cline's Walking After Midnight and The Clash's I Fought the Law complete a very satisfactory and worthwhile package. There are few so-called live albums you can honestly say that about. Faceless but indomitable, Brian is the Pete Sampras of rock, which is okay, provided he doesn't start wearing such unfeasibly large shorts. This next review is for an album entitled Shimmer by a band called Surgery. This is reviewed by Paul Brannigan and this gets 4Ks. Precious indie signed band Take Note. Moving to a major label doesn't necessarily entail selling out. Sometimes, Nirvana Helmet Jawbox, it can lead to the best work of your career. Surgery have just joined the club. New York's finest exponents of scuzzball rock truly trawl the gutters to excellent effect on Shimmer. Very much products of their environment, Surgery, like the John Spencer Blues Explosion, kick out down and dirty white boy jams with driving backbeats. Guitars are wielded like offensive weapons, the bass humps unsteadily down side streets, the drums lash out like a drunk who's had his last can of special brew confiscated. Surgery aren't afraid to take chances with their sewer blues. The title track is an almost jazzy explosion featuring just drums and a drawling vocal. Low cut blues vacuums 42nd Street's grime encrusted sidewalks with its tongue while Gulf, Gulf Coast score slinks along on Scott Kebler's slide guitar. But this is no grim urban document. Throughout the album, the sleaze is nicely counterbalanced by vocalist Sean McDonald's tongue-in-cheek humour. The New York Quartet have fashioned a beautiful noise from the squalor. Filth has rarely been so much fun. Chart Attack and the number one single this week is Word Up by Gun. Number one in the indie metal album chart is Stacked Up by Sensor. And the number one albums is Greatest Hits by Whitesnake. The reader's chart this week comes from industrial nutter Adam Bowman from Chelmsford. Uh, on Adam's chart, number one, So What, Ministry, two, Reptile, Nine Inch Nails, three, Fork Boy, Lard, four, Murder Inc. by Murder Inc., five, Beers, Steers and Queers, Revolting Cocks, six, Huida Huida, Bomb Everything, seven, Looking Forward, CNN, eight, Making Waves, Hyperhead, nine, Release, Mal Havoc, and ten, 15 Minutes of Fame by Sheep on Drugs. The... Star Tracks this week, ferocious biohazard pop pounder Danny Schuler divulges what's devouring his death deck. Number one, ill communication Beastie Boys, two, Super Unknown Soundgarden, three, Black Sunday Cypress Hill, four, Physical Graffiti Led Zeppelin, and number five, Rock for Light by The Bad Brains. We now come to a special report in Kerrang! entitled Dancing with Death about the dangers of stage diving. Lee O'Connor was just 21. Like most Kerrang! readers, he loved his metal passionately. On June 29th, he went to see Motorhead at the Forum London. He never came home. As reported last week, Lee suffered head injuries after stage diving at the gig. He lapsed into a coma and died on June 25th. Here, in a Kerrang! investigation, we delve into the highs, lows and dangers of stage diving. Self-confessed diver Morat examines the phenomenon which has grown from a bonding process into a blood sport. Sweat drips from the ceiling. Your ears ring. Your favourite band are midway through their set and the whole venue is in absolute chaos. Bodies fly in every conceivable direction, clambering up PA stacks and over monitors to compete for a chance to pull off the best stage dive. There is no prize but the stakes are high. Maybe there should be a celebrity panel of judges at some shows giving points for artistic merit. You'd lose points for lingering too long on stage or waving to your mates. More points off if you slip on the monitor and fail to clear the front row. Immediate disqualification if you tread on any effects pedal, knock a mic stand over, bash into the guitarist mid-solo or try to hug the singer. 
double points if you manage a complicated dive or a backflip, and of course straight into the finals if you leap from the balcony or PA. To an outsider, this sort of behaviour is somewhat unusual to say the least. Tina Marie from the Into You Body Piercing Studio went along to the recent Biohazard gig at the Marquee out of curiosity. The band had been in her shop buying a few things and they invited her along. She had never seen stage diving before. I'd heard this sort of thing went on but I never believed it, she told me. Talk about a baptism of fire. And flames have always held a fascination. The craziest gigs are the most memorable, like when Poison Idea played at London's Yulu on their first UK visit and the whole band pulls mid-song to watch some maniac crusty plummet from the PA, or when that fat bloke kept disappearing through the crowd like a brick thrown into a pond at the recent Entombed Napalm Death Marquee gig. Then there was that insane Pantera show at the Marquee last January. People were virtually diving off the walls, it was so wild. Brilliant, until some fucker landed on my head with all his body weight. I didn't see it coming. I just felt a neck-jarring, spine-shattering crunch, then slightly dazed, I pushed my way out of the pit to examine a chipped tooth. I didn't realise my head was bleeding until I went to wipe the sweat from my face and found it was red. It's only a small scar. Could have been worse. Much worse. If you play with fire often enough, you're going to get burned. There are no lists of gig casualties. Venues don't give out information like that. They either claim not to keep records of injuries, or they deny any knowledge of them because it gives them a bad name if people get hurt. Record companies don't have much more of an idea because they're not out on the road with the bands. They just pick up the occasional piece of gossip. Even the bands don't know the full story because unless an incident happens right at the front of the stage, they might not even know about it. On June 19th, Leo Connor 21 went to the forum in Kentish Town to see Motorhead and never came home. The true story of his tragic death will probably never be known, but it is evident that he suffered serious head injuries while he was at the show, possibly due to hitting the metal crowd safety barriers. Sadly, Lee's death is just the tip of the iceberg. Just a fortnight ago, two people were hurt during an entombed set at London's Astoria 2. The extent of their injuries is not known, but the band stopped playing mid-song and amid confusion, vocalist LG Petrov said anxiously, somebody call an ambulance, this guy is bleeding. Entombed's record label Earache have no further details regarding the incident, but lawnmower death frontman Pete, Qualcast mutilator Lee, who also works as a PR for Earache, has seen and heard it all many times before. The amount of injuries I've seen over the last six years has been ludicrous. I've seen everything from broken noses, broken arms and broken legs to a kid breaking his back. I've seen some preposterous injuries and they don't bother stopping, it's absolute insanity. And the fans aren't the only people getting hurt, the bands are also getting injuries that can curtail a whole tour. Sepultura's Max Cavalera broke his collarbone diving at a Napalm Death show. Corrosion to Conformity frontman Pepper Keenan broke his leg diving to Pantera. Anti-Sheaves from Fear Factory broke his shoulder and his arm dive into Biohazard. And so it goes on. Bands are even getting sued over stage diving fans' injuries. A kid dives off stage, breaks his leg and then tries to sue the band. Pantera are reportedly embroiled in several such lawsuits. Singer Phil Anselmo even has to be careful what he says on stage in case he's accused of inciting crowd violence. In a way, the fans are censoring the bands. It's all a fire cry from how stage diving started. In the UK at least, it began at punk gigs for two reasons. Firstly, a lot of venues such as the 100 Club had very low stages and if you were at the front when the crowd searched from behind, there was nowhere else to go but onto the stage and no way of getting off except over people's heads. Secondly, the bouncers at bigger punk shows at places like the Lyceum Ballroom were not known for their charm. They used to beat the crap out of people for such heinous crimes as dancing and singing. I received quite a savage kick in myself at the Lyceum for shaking my fist in time to a GBH song. Thus it took nerves of steel to attempt to stage dive. You'd get maybe one or two per gig and they'd always raise a cheer from the crowd. It used to piss the bouncers off. You'd get a serious beating and miss the rest of the gig if you got caught. In a way, it was a protest against violence, not the cause of terrible injuries. True, some bands have spoken out against stage diving. Ex-Wolf Spain vocalist Blaze Bailey, now with Iron Maiden, always said, if you want to get on stage, join a fucking band. Henry Rollins has been known to deal with divers even more aggressively than the bouncers. And US art noise nutters Alice Donut once suggested that instead of people booting each other in the faces, it would be better if they just introduced themselves to the person standing next to them. Over the years, I've seen it get stupid, says Grob, a well-known promoter of hardcore death metal and punk gigs. I used to think it was freedom of expression, but there's always some egotistical asshole who wants to spoil it for everyone else. My policy is to leave it up to the band. If they don't mind stage divers, then fine. But if they don't want any, then that can be arranged. There is no simple solution to the stage diving dilemma. And as someone who has dived to numerous bands, it would be hypocritical of me to suggest otherwise. 
Stage diving can make a great gig just by the sheer energy it unleashes. If done properly, it looks awesome. But with people being crippled for life, spending months in plaster or even being killed, it has gone way beyond silly. Says Pete Lee, if it's regulated, which is hard to do, then nobody's going to get hurt and everybody enjoys themselves. But for that to happen, you'd have to let people up one at a time and make sure they flip onto their back when they dive and make sure people are going to catch them. I've seen it where 40 or 50 people are on stage and they all charge forward and half of them going feet first. If I was stood on the floor, the last thing I'm going to do is catch somebody like that. It looks great and it's quite complimentary that people want to go that berserk to you, but it is silly. To make matters worse, the more serious injuries such as brain damage can be difficult to spot until it's too late. Plus, there are rarely fully trained medical staff at gigs. Symptoms of a head injury include aggressive behaviour and slurred speech, both of which could so easily be dismissed as mere drunkenness. The same applies if someone has passed out. They could be pissed, or they could be bleeding into their brain and dying. Often, the only noticeable sign that something is amiss is that one eye pupil may be dilated, enlarged, while the other is its normal size. If your mate has taken a knock on the head and is acting oddly, don't feel embarrassed to take them to casualty and explain to the doctor what has happened. You might save their life. Meanwhile, it might be a good idea to think about your actions in future. After all, you might just be having fun, but do you really think it's going to be such a laugh watching gigs from a wheelchair for the rest of your life? Next week in Kerrang! Back Issues, Motley Crew exclusive. Is it all over for the crew? Are LA's finest out of touch with 1994? The Big Kerrang! talks tough with Nikki Six and the boys as their US tour falls apart. Also, Guns N' Roses drama, Axel bashing in the US. The cult return, has Ian Asprey gone bonkers? Metallica Live, Day by Day Diary of US Tour, Faith No More's Freak Beat, New LP Noise Fest Terror, plus Cathedral, Propane, Gun, Skin, and the usual killer reviews, hot news, and a ton of attitude. Kerrang! Your ultimate guide to the week in metal every Wednesday, 64 pages, still only £1.40. Plus, your commentators at the World Cup final. Blimey, it's Sepultura. And before I forget, here are the answers to the quiz, which was at the start of this episode. In which year did Iron Maiden release their Power Slave album? The answer is 1984. Which Sepultura album features a track, Slaves of Pain? That is Beneath the Remains. Which Soundgarden album includes Slaves and Bulldozers? That is B uh, Bad Motorfinger. Whose second album was entitled From Enslavement to Obliteration? Napalm Death. And which ludicrous character fronted Slave Raider? The answer for that is Chainsaw Kane. Now, I think I would have got three or four of those out of five. Uh, if you also got three or four out of five, then well done. Buy yourself a lovely beer or a non-alcoholic beer to celebrate. Uh, if ever anyone got five out of five of those, then you should probably be doing this podcast rather than me. I've never heard of Chainsaw Kane before. Anyway, that concludes this week's episode. I hope you're all doing well out there. Um, I hope you're enjoying this hot weather that we're having in the UK at the moment. It is lovely. Uh, talk to you all soon and we'll be back next week. All right. Bye for now. Cheers. <laughs>